Hello, everyone, and welcome to HR Works, the podcast for HR professionals. We really appreciate you taking time out of your busy day to join us. I'm the host of HR Works, Jim Davis, and the editor of the HR Daily Advisor. This podcast aims to put valuable tools and knowledge into the hands and ears of you, the HR professional, and those tools will arm you with the best methods and strategies for attracting, motivating, and retaining top talent. I'm pleased to be joined today by Fiona Hathorne. She is the CEO of Women on Boards UK, an advisory board member to Spectral, a technology company that helps organizations simplify the gender pay gap reporting process, advisor to Peel Hunt, mid-cap stockbroker, and chair of Hank's nomination committee, FMCG Startup. She's an expert in the areas of governance, regulation, and talent management, who has sat on both marketing and audit and finance committees. She's also a patron of Fight for Sight, a medical research charity, and was formerly a director for Hill Samuel Asset Management. She has advised the board of the Thai Euro Fund and is a judge for the Non-Executive Directors Award, for the Non-Executive Director Award, sponsored by the Sunday Times. In 2020, Fiona joined King's College London's Global Institute for Women's Leadership Advisory Board. Thank you very much, Fiona, for joining me today. You're welcome. Looking forward to having a chat. Boards. We're here to talk about boards um, and specifically the lack of diversity of boards and uh, really the role that HR professionals have to play uh, in, in that world. So, I mean, just to begin, um, could you characterize sort of the state of diversity amongst boards today? Well, I think uh, it's interesting to put it in a bit of historical context. About 12 years ago, globally, the average listed board was at 10% and below in terms of women specifically on boards. Um, And that's the one thing that a lot of countries currently measure. Um, People are moving towards other forms of diversity on boards in terms of measurements, but there is not a huge amount of data. Today, globally, um, most big listed companies, whether they're in the FTSE, the NASDAQ, um, the S&P All Share, are around 33%. So most of them have got to almost a third. Now that's at the big listed level. So in the UK, for example, I'm talking about the FTSE 100, our top 100 companies, and the FTSE 250. But what's really interesting is if you look outside the big cap that have had that focus and lens put upon them by investors, regulators, um, many, many boards are still languishing uh, with no women on their boards at all. Um, And if you look, for example, in our FTSE All Share, which has got 600 companies in it, um, so liquid-ish, not as the the, the large ones, Um, if we go outside the FTSE 350 in terms of colour on boards, we're only at 3%. Um, And I really don't think that's good enough because we know diverse teams perform better and the top dictates the strategy, the investment, the culture of the company. And it must be diverse and it currently isn't around the world globally. Yeah, and that really represents a a real issue, you know, at least in the world of HR, when we talk about diversity, we almost never discuss boards. And when you look at just generally speaking, diversity, at least in the States amongst uh, organizations, even at the larger organizations, it's tilted where the lower echelons of the organization, the entry-level, mid-level managers have the most diversity. Um, and then as you get the far, farther up you go, the less, the less you get, and that continues on into boards. Um, 
and you know, if we just keep talking about things the way we've been talking about it within an organization, not considering, uh, you know, the executives and, and the board members, you know, what hope do we have? Yeah, I think it's the board does effectively two things. Um, it's governance, so filing accounts, it's risk registers, people management, HR policies, you know, that good governance, good operations and Boards need to oversee that that's being done properly in companies. And then you get the performance side and that's strategy and stargazing. Um, and people are a huge part of how organizations are run successfully. You can have fantastic strategic plans, but if you can't manage and engage your people uh, to effectively implement those plans, you've got a problem. So there is a huge need for knowledge of people um, and how to manage people on boards. Now, you know, you and I were discussing when we chatted earlier about the lack of HR expertise in the boardroom. Um, and that's largely because companies do skills audit. And the one thing they must have is usually a registered, chartered, qualified accountant. They usually like somebody who sat on a board before. And of course, that's quite a small pool, very male dominated as well. And those people who get onto the boards of other companies as non-execs, they've often been ex-chief execs. And again, that's very male dominated. Um, and a lot of people don't transition from HR heading up large teams to become chief execs. Um, but I do think that things are changing. Um, and the reason for that is there's a lot of focus now on ESG, environmental, social, um, and the risks that companies have if they get those things wrong. And the social part is, is sort of culture and governance. And the environmental part is really understanding your customer, understanding people. Uh, it's not about selling them products that they may or may not want to buy, as the financial services industry have done in the past. It is about genuinely making a difference. And increasingly, individuals are being, boards are being asked about that. And I think, therefore, you're going to get more people in the boardroom with a different skill set. And it's very much required and very much needed. Yeah, one of the things, you know, as we're talking that it makes me think of is, you know, at my organization, and and I've heard this from a lot of other folks, the CEOs will say, you know, my door is open, come on in anytime if you have something to talk. And the other issues aside, which is that it's still incredibly difficult to do that as an employee, and it almost never happens, is that that's where it stops. You know, I have absolutely no expectation that I could get in touch with the, the board members of the private equity firm that runs our organization. I would be highly irregular um, and possibly, you know, uh, detrimental to, to my employment. It's just like they're in a different world and they are, but the impact that they're having on organizations obviously is huge. So I guess the question is, you know, where do we begin to to get that flux to get people that are employees and hr people to understand even what a board is and what it does and to get board members to understand that that they need to understand their people better and not just the ceos well not all boards are effective um, an effective board is there to um, support the chief executive and the senior executive team um, managing the organisation whilst they're overseeing governance, risk, 
uh, stakeholders, shareholders at the same time. And non-executive directors there are there to look after the long-term survivability of the company and if necessarily, if necessary, replace the chief executive. Now, you cannot do that if you, as a non-exec, don't from time to time visit the organisations, the plant, the operations and talk to people within the organisation. So good non-executive directors today do visit the organisation and do make themselves accessible. And I don't mean, um, you know, constantly come and talk to me and let's undermine the chief executive, Um, but making sure you have open days, uh, not open days, sort of um, you are open forums and you're available to talk. So that is happening more and more. But to answer your question specifically, how do we get more people in the boardroom? I believe that you are never too young to know about the boardroom. And actually, the earlier that you know about the boardroom, and I mean before you even go to um, college or university, there's a boardroom out there for everyone. So when you get to university, there'll be sports boards, club boards, arts boards, theatre boards, debating society boards. Um, And if you get exposure to um, sitting on the little management committee of some of these clubs, you start to learn about finance, you learn about people issues, you might uh, learn about regulation, you might have to report to the student union. If you're on a small charity board, it'll be your charities or your not-for-profit regulators. So you learn so much. And what's really interesting, uh, no matter what area of expertise you have, those people that get to the top in organisations, and I'm talking foot. Fortune 500 organization have usually been on a board before the age of 28. They've been engaged with their community at a leadership level. And I think if we can inspire people within the HR sector, not only themselves, but to support their employees going on boards, they will be better leaders within businesses because you're often floating at the top of an organization way, way before you'll be floating at the top of an organization um, in your day job. So it gives you the confidence to maybe knock on the chief exec's door and say, oh, I think you might be interested in something. Um, or, by the way, I was at a charity organisation and the governing board I'm on has this issue. How are we dealing with that issue within our company? So you start to sound and talk differently. And if we can inspire people to think that way, um, HR can be a large part of that. Um, we work with a lot of HR teams, but I'll talk about that later. Yeah, that's really good advice. Um well, it's interesting that that people, I guess, have to start so young or do start so young to to get that exposure. I'll admit that I have very little understanding of how how boards work myself, you know, and it's not like it's automatic. You wouldn't know unless you go look for it, unless you, you know, try it and, and understand it. Um, I've talked to a lot of folks about looking at culture and looking at diversity as part of culture um, and, and getting that to be understood as an absolute must by leaders because it has to work at the top. You know, and, and one of the things that we always come across is that if you're object or if you're objective focused, then it's do these things and get this result. But when you're talking about cultures and diversity, it's never, you're never done. It's always going on. It's always changing and evolving, and that requires an unusual level of both introspection, which is, I think, can be a challenge for people, um, and a, a belief that 
you can always do more and you can always do better. Um, do you have any thoughts on, I guess that just that in general and, and how to communicate that to leaders that maybe don't understand it? Well, I think first thing um, is that uh, culture is important because it's arguably the governing mechanism that drives outcomes in the business. So as a leader, you have to know that. So lots of leaders talk about culture, um, but then don't actually actively manage it. And it's difficult. Um, And that requires leaders to think. Think what is the right system, procedures, rituals, processes that are needed in this company to succeed. And that's simple things like, you know, 7am stand-up meetings might not work for everyone in the organisation. How do we consciously include people who can't get to the office at 7am, but might be brilliant contributors to our meetings? So that's requiring a deep amount of thought. The next thing you need to do is to do something. Um, to nurture the organisation. And if necessary, that might mean investing in how to be consciously inclusive as a leader, Um, how to be a better leader. And a lot of companies don't invest in leadership skills. They promote people to the level of incompetence, which is managing people. Um, And then what you say matters, um, how you ask a question, how mindful you are. And then it's about feeling, isn't it? Emotions empowerment and change and organizations that want to change their culture need to take understand that change takes a long time and most change programs fail and they fail because they don't get the hearts and minds of people um you know it's complex it's difficult nobody says it's easy but it's extremely important and that's why knowledge of diversity and inclusion and culture in the boardroom is important and why you won't get um, people investing in that change program at the cultural perspective unless they understand it's important and there aren't enough people with both that skills and knowledge. And I think people in HR do have that skills and knowledge and that's why they should be in the boardroom. Absolutely. You know, when you talk about an organization that's trying, that maybe has successfully identified a need for diversity, uh, a need for change, they have to realize that things have momentum to them. So the way that things were before you decided that you need to make a change is the way that everyone currently looks at it. So if you suddenly make changes, you're going to have a bunch of things happening. One thing that's going to happen is people will be suspicious of your changes and maybe not believe that it's sincere. The time that it takes for you to win them over is going to be probably a long time and it's going to take actual sincerity. And it's going to take some punishment. You're going to have to really, you know, take a couple on the chin as an organization when you realize maybe you've been doing something not so great or or you haven't done enough. You're going to have to eat crow a little bit and realize, yes, we have made mistakes. And you have to be, as the leader, willing to push through that because it's going to be hard. And then once you finally get to a point where people are saying, okay, they're really trying. They really, you know, they've, they've taken our complaints and, and they're still trying, they're still doing things. That's when you finally have a chance to change that momentum into a different direction. And it's no wonder that, as you say, people fail, those, those kinds of uh, efforts fail because that's one of the hardest things about being a person. 
Yeah, and I think one of the things that's interesting is um, change programs. It's it's called the ABC of change, awareness, belief and commitment. And if you don't have belief, you have to go backwards and get the belief. Most people are viewing this as a very negative thing. You know, if we um, recruit more women, if we recruit more um, ethnic diversity within our teams or disability, you know, there's many, many forms or cognitive diversity. That means I will lose out. I might not get promoted. Um, those people fundamentally miss um, that it's about performance. It is about business. It's not about tick boxing. You know, the McKinsey research is very, very clear on this. You are 36% more likely to outperform as a business if you have ethnically diverse executive teams and 25% more if you have gender diversity teams. So the whole organization wins if it can lead diverse teams, but diverse teams are harder to manage. One of the things that we do as an organisation is we go in to um, inspire individuals to actively manage their careers, think about the boardroom, and also be very positive with regard to um, the benefits of diversity and inclusion. And I think not enough time is spent with middle managers talking about the business benefits, the product delivery, um, the better customer outcomes. And that's why we're doing it as opposed to somebody's told us we need to tick a load of boxes and my boss is saying or the regulator is forcing us. You know, that is deeply unhelpful. And that's why unconscious bias programs don't change, uh, change behaviours. You know, do we really think a 20 minute video and a few chats with a few individuals is going to change decades um, of sustained deeply subconscious views on things. It's tough. Yeah, a lot of what you're talking about reminds me of the, you know, basically endless debate about affirmative action programs that we tried here in the States. You know, a lot of similar arguments. Well, you're just, what if you're, you're not getting the most qualified people, you're pushing them aside so you can make room for these other people. And, you know, you have people on kind of both sides of the issue or getting upset at it um it was it's a mess it's a mess it's messy business and yeah i think that personally i mean as as a white male who's had to go through quite a bit of introspection himself it's so easy to just find a something to blame and just slide back into thinking about things in simplistic terms you know and that's on an individual level and when you're talking about change in organization you're talking about dozens or hundreds, or in some cases, thousands of different viewpoints and beliefs, it could probably seem impossibly overwhelming. Um, and here I've gone and focused on, on the negative again. See, it was even hard within the context of our conversation. Yeah, I think um, one of the things that we talk about um, is if, for example, um, a lot of people don't like the word targets. Um, and I think targets are really important. And I often say to people, you have targets for sales, you have targets for costs, you have targets for product development, uh, capital investments. Um, you even have targets for paperclip consumption because that's how businesses work. Why is it you don't like understanding your data and having a target for diverse hiring, promotion, um, but you do have to have intelligent targets? 
Um, and the reason you have to have intelligent targets is a blanket target is we want to, we've only got 20% of women into management at senior levels or um, individuals of colour. So we're going to set a target at 50%. If you have no turnover within your company, and one division starts at 5% and one's at 35%. It's a nonsense target. So you have to have intelligent targets broken up by division and department. And it has to be positive. But one of the mantras that we have is you need to turn off the spotlight of people you know and turn on the floodlight to all of the talent out there. And of course, when you turn on the floodlight, you have to reach further out into networks that maybe you weren't part of before to get top brilliant talent coming in. And that takes longer. And everybody wants to recruit quickly and they prefer the devil that you know, particularly in the board space, I might add, because we transparently advertise boards. So yes, it is complex, but you have to make it, as you point out, a positive. This is going to be great for the company, but the person talking in that way has to really believe it. And that's why um, your behaviors and what you do and say matters so much as leaders. Yeah, it's funny. We did uh, recruiting surveys for a number of years uh, annually. You know, one of the most important questions is how do you how do you recruit? And word of mouth or employee referrals was always number one. I mean, just by far. And you still hear experts talking about the value of it, especially now that here we're in a we're in a hiring crisis. I understand it's the same over there too. You know, the recruiting world is saying, you need people in, let's make some sacrifices and get them in the door. And the sacrifices, talk to everyone you know, talk to all of your employees and who they know. And we all know that that leads to a lack of diversity because people just pick the people that they know or that they're related to, and they're going to be a lot like them. So that easy fix, especially in a time like today, when we're in the middle of, of a very serious hiring crisis and a lot of employers are going to get it dead wrong. It's so easy to pick up those tools that, that we've been relying on, whether they were good or not, or I don't know, forever, I guess. <laughs> and now a little bit of information about our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Namely. Your HR platform should make your life easier. That's what Namely does. Namely is the all-in-one HR platform that employees and employers love. Namely is modernizing HR as we know it. Whether you have 50 or 1,000 employees, Namely is the HR solution that can grow with your company. With Namely's intuitive, centralized platform, your employees can request PTO, update their benefits, review their pay stub. There's even a news feed where they can stay engaged and show appreciation for coworkers. Plus, Namely can handle everything related to payroll, simplify onboarding, and keep your company compliant, saving your HR team hours every week. Best of all, Namely specialists make switching headache-free so you can move from your current HR platform, even a fully outsourced professional employer and organization, or PEO, to a more modern tech solution. Build a better workplace with Namely today, and for a limited time, get free implementation and PEO transition services when you make the switch from a PEO. Go to Namely.com today. That's Namely.com. And now, back to our episode. Well, I, I think Wells Fargo may well have changed their hiring policy, but they used to have a policy of never using headhunters, never using search agents, only using the network they know. So funnily enough, they got people all of the same type. Um, and there have been a few governance issues, I gather, in that organisation over the last 10 years, as there has been with many financial services companies. So it is really, really important 
to uh, understand you need to take time. Um, and one of the things that we try and do as an organization is go into companies and say, do you know what the board of your company does? Do you understand the committee structures? Because there's many, many committees within companies. It might be a remuneration committee. It might be a digital strategy committee. There's lots of things that report into boards. Because if you don't look up and understand this, you won't get through and to the top. And one of the things that is really shocking as, you know, not a, you're talking about in the company hiring, but most boards do not transparently advertise today. Most boards, very few boards actually use headhunters. So it's one of the reasons why we advertise vacancies for free. And in the UK, we've advertised 22,000 board vacancies for free. And we grab them in the newspapers, public appointment websites, all sorts of things. We use our network um, to get access to roles. So if so-and-so says, are you interested in the role? That person then makes sure it's advertised on our website so everyone can see it. And that's really, really important. And there aren't enough platforms out there where um, vacancies are transparently advertised. And it's absolutely crucial in the board space. And again, if you don't have a strong regulator, and it could be a regulator in the technology sector, but it often comes from, in our case, it's the Financial Reporting Council, which you know looks at the Companies Act and decides how you should interpret that depending on your size. Um, and if you don't have a regulator demonstrating best practice, and we have a complier explain, and now they're saying we expect you to do things at a certain size to have a skills audit, we expect that skills audit to be independent, and we expect you to use a headhunter so you go outside your networks. Um, but not enough companies do. Hence why when we talk to individuals and if anybody's here, you know, just get in touch and we can help you sell your board value add because most people still get a board from position from somebody they know. But when you're interacting with somebody on a board, there's no good talking to them only about your executive skills. You need to talk about why you care about that organization, how you think add to add value to that organization, how you fit with the rest of the board um, to try and get them to ask you to come for an interview. And then when you get to the interview, it's a personality interview often and, and you've got to write a good CV. There's lots of things that you need to think about. Um, and I would like anybody listening to this to think strategically about all the boards out there, how they want to change the society as a whole and think about how they might broker themselves onto these boards um, and we need to encourage and support minorities in particular um, from all backgrounds, all sectors, all industries um, to do that and that's what we specialize in. There is a phrase that gets used an awful lot. It's called the business case for diversity. Now, I look at it as a simplification of an incredibly complicated set of things that happen when an organization is diverse specifically designed to sell to numbers oriented or financially oriented leaders, the idea that diversity is better. And we could talk about the virtues and values of boiling stuff down for a while, but ultimately I think it's really important for people to understand that two things are happening. Diversity does drive better outcomes for a business. And two, it doesn't happen overnight. There will be no measure of time that you can reliably say, this is how long it's going to take for us to start benefiting from this. It's in many ways a leap of faith to say, 
we're going to take the risk of stepping outside our comfort zone and, and hiring the kinds of people that we're not used to hiring and then allowing those people to be in an environment where they can grow and innovate freely to then create value for you down the road. And the nuances in that, that I brought up just here in this little, little sentence I've put together, I mean, they're incredible, incredible number of nuances. And then on the other side of that, you have, at least here in the States for private or publicly traded companies, mandatory quarterly earnings reports. You have to show to your investors that you have taken such and such steps to make value for the company. So you have a, a very fixed, and a lot of private companies do the same thing, even though it's not mandatory. You have a very fixed set of achievements that are happening on an incredibly short timescale. A quarter is like nothing, you know, especially if you're talking about a long-term effort. Those two are just automatically at odds. I guess the question is, how do you educate leaders? How does HR educate leaders on navigating the space between those two very, very opposed concepts? Um, I think firstly, um, it's very difficult for HR to do that unless the executive wants to embrace and listen. And one way that um, HR can benefit from the change that's happening in the world globally at the moment is to um, rely and, on investors doing it because the pressure from the investment community, whether it's BlackRock, whether it's Fidelity, whether it's Ontario teachers, you know, some of these big pension fund groups uh, globally saying, actually, we are going to ask the question in the investor meeting. We're going to ask the chair. We're going to ask the chief executive because it's these companies that are being called to account by their investors uh, with regard to the environment, for example, because that's uh, you know, at odds with that quarterly earnings profile as well, isn't it? How do you report your earnings whilst investing in something that's going to mean that you reduce your carbon footprint or you'll change your plastics? So there is a huge risk. And I know as chief executive, certainly as a fund manager myself, I've you know had uh, executives come to talk to me about you know missing targets and share prices falling. You have to be a very strong chief executive and you have to have the full support of your board to say, I am perfectly happy that we are going to achieve our two to three year, four years targets. And you have to really understand diversity and inclusion. You have to understand the environments and you have to have a really confident view of where you're going to go. Um, and Indra Inouye, um, who was a PepsiCo chief exec for a while, has a great um, talks about being attacked by an investor when she was reducing the sugar content and bringing low sugar products, which could have had a big risk to PepsiCo's revenue. Um, and she had investors shouting at her in quarterly meetings. And it was one really large investor who she said it was the most deeply unpleasant investor meeting she's ever had. And he walked out of the room and said, now I believe you because you took my pressure and you took my stress. You are going to go for the medium term, the long term, which long term will be in the best interest of this company. Well done. And she didn't expect him to say that after he went out. But he knew that she was going to get intense pressure from the industry. She might wobble. And if you wobble implementing a big change strategy like that, you're going to fail. So the investment community has to be involved. And then I think the relationship between diversity and inclusion and HR will get better and stronger. And they'll stop playing at it setting up a few minority networks, fixing a few minorities, fiddling here, there and everywhere and start really investing in 
how to be collaborative, how to be a good leader. Um, and you talked about being brave and, and bringing people in from different backgrounds. That's fantastic. But you did allude to the fact that when they arrive, you have to then support them because it's tough for a minority coming into an environment where they uh, don't see people like themselves. You've got to be uber strong and uber brilliant because the lens and everyone's looking at you. So if you get a sense in your culture is you're not being supported by line managers, chief execs, leaders of teams, it's a problem. So um, you're right, it's difficult. But I think HR are increasingly getting support and will increasingly get support from regulators and the investment community, who I have to say are not particularly good themselves in terms of diversity and inclusion, in terms of the money managers, but uh, they're getting attacked as well themselves, which is good. I agree. It's it's fundamentally critical. I mean, unfortunately, it just seems that change doesn't happen unless... And I guess I shouldn't be surprised. I mean, this is basically physics. Change doesn't happen unless enacted upon by an outside force. And in this case, that force is, you know, not just the investor, the, the big ticket investors. It's also an increased interest by retail investors. You know, we saw this year the whole GameStop scenario where, you know, a bunch of funds tried to short the, the stocks for GME, the GameStop. Just they wanted to make money. By betting against them and normally that would have worked but because of a growing awareness amongst just sort of everyday people about how these things work it blew up in their face big time they lost billions of dollars funds went out of business and that awareness was this isn't fair which is something that i don't think was necessarily uh, automatically baked into the financial system and these are the same kinds of people who are going to be investing in your organization and they're looking at those indexes to see how is this organization getting their supply chain? How diverse is this organization? You know, just recently we had Pride Month, lots and lots and lots of organizations are putting flags, you know, rainbow flags out and publicly available information was dug into and we found that they gave money to to leader or to politicians that that uh, don't support LGBTQ plus efforts or people that are anti-gay. And that hurt. I mean, it didn't drive them out of business or anything, but there's a lot of people that are very upset and, and they have, they have a vote in a sense now in a way that wasn't the case before. And that's, that's not going away. Not while the, not while the world's on fire and we all have access to all of the information in our pockets. Well, well, you're right, because social media plays a big part in this, because we can get our voices heard much faster and companies can be a call to account and we don't have to wait for a journalist to write up the, the uh, their views. But you've also got the young generation who simply don't want to work in organisations where they can't see their children. They're treated like a, a widget as opposed to an individual. So a lot's changing. And I think um, HR, in terms of that voice, between listening to what youngsters are saying and passing that information to the senior executive suite team. And I think applications today, apps, you don't need to do a survey of your employees once a year, once every five years, how it used to be done. You can have sense apps. How are you feeling today? What's going on? And technology can really help HR communicate that message in a data way to say, gosh, look at what's happening in Texas or in Scotland or whatever. Something's happening in that division because clearly people are unhappy. 
So there's lots of exciting things that that will help change. And and what we try and do is to say uh, to support anybody who's interested in the boardroom. And we love going into companies, talking about the boardroom and inspiring them to believe they can be on boards in the community. It's all a little bit like taking a mini MBA that uh, you don't get paid for and you don't have to pay for, assuming you choose the right company, floating at the top of an organisation before your time and bringing that skills knowledge back. And it changes you as an individual. So we encourage people to do it. And anybody in the HR arena um, who does get into boards will have a different sense of self and they'll realise that they know a lot more about things in general that they didn't know they knew because they're so in their zone of HR within the company. And it's only when they got outside the organisation they realised they had other things to offer and then you became a, become a more confident self within companies. So I um, highly recommend going on to boards as part of a career development strategy, which is why we work with so many companies and minorities in particular because they've had less exposure to the boardroom through their friends and family and therefore they have less knowledge of what goes on in it. And you talked about that yourself, not being quite sure. And what we try and do is simplify it. Do you know what? The Companies Act is not difficult. Reading accounts is not difficult. Asking common sense questions is not difficult. But you have to have confidence to broker yourself onto boards, because as we said earlier, too many boards don't transparently advertise, which is uh, where we come in to try and change that. Well, Fiona... Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. And uh, listeners, we are going to have a link to her organization, Women on Boards UK, in the description. So if you have any interest in what she's talking about, please look there and, uh, and you can find out more. Um, listeners, we're always interested in suggestions that you might have for what HR Works should cover next. Please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at HR Works Podcast with your suggestions of any thoughts or concerns you might have about the podcast. Feel free to say hi. Tell us how we're doing. Um, we're also now available on Spotify and Audible. Uh, so basically, you can find us anywhere that podcasts can be found. Thank you for listening. This is Jim Davis with HR Works. <laughs>